Hello, I'm Jen Yamato. And I'm Frank Sean. We are the hosts of a new podcast from the Los Angeles Times called Asian Enough. It takes on questions that many Asian Americans wrestle with, like, am I Asian enough? Am I American enough? And what do those questions even mean? And just to note, most of our episodes were recorded in the world before coronavirus. So we're hoping that for now, this podcast can just be a brief break from the anxiety that's everywhere right now. We'll also have a bonus episode for you later this week, a special quarantine edition that will look more into how the coronavirus is impacting the Asian American community. Our very first guest on episode one is the actor John Cho. And apparently he's still most recognized for his work in the American Pie film franchise. And I believe that early role that John played was officially called Milf Guy Number Two. What a what a name! If I had gotten the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> and people were on the street going Nobel Peace Prize guy, <laughs> uh, high five! I'd be high fiving back. Yeah, that's right. Peace, Middle East, me. Uh, but um, but you know, being the Milf Guy, you wanted to go. Hey, shh, shh, shh. that and so so much more coming up. But first, before we get to our conversation with John Cho, we want to spend a few minutes telling you a bit about why we wanted to create this podcast. So, Frank, you start. Well, I think growing up in Tennessee as the son of Taiwanese immigrants among a lot of white people left me really craving community. You know, it's part of the reason I applied to school in California. It's part of the reason I started pushing to tell Asian American stories at the LA Times is this idea of community and searching for it, you know. Being around other Asians and having them in my life, it's just important to me. If you don't have anyone to talk about racism and the specific things that we go up against in, you know, this society, you never get a chance to set down this burden and laugh at it and try to take away its power. So that's me. Uh, Jen, how about you? Why, Why did you want to make this podcast? So even for me growing up in the super diverse Bay Area, I would always get this question my whole life, which is the question that we all get that is so annoying, which is, no, where are you really from? And that's a question that was really upsetting to me for a long time and honestly still is. My own family also is Japanese-American. I'm fourth generation, and it's taken me a long time to really grapple with my family's experience with internment, for example. So there's a lot to unpack there, and that's just my story. And here at the LA Times, I cover film and entertainment, which means I get to sit down with a lot of really talented Asian Americans. But we seldom get to deep dive into their own cultural identities and their stories, and there's a lot to unpack there. So my hope with this podcast is that we will be starting conversations that continue both inside and outside the Asian American community long after we wrap up these 13 episodes. We've got a new episode for you every Tuesday, and we tried to feature as many different kinds of guests as possible. But it goes without saying that these conversations won't even begin to represent the whole of the Asian American experience. But we have to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So each episode, we'll also ask our guests to share some bad Asian confessions. These are times in their lives when they didn't feel Asian enough. And we'll talk about why they felt that way. Jen, you want to hear mine? No, Frank, don't give it all away yet. We have to give our listeners something to look forward to. All right, all right. And with that, let's get into the show. Here is our conversation with John Cho. Go. Okay, John Cho is a very famous actor who you've seen yeah. in the TV shows. Oh, wait, no. 
That's not right. John Shep. <laughs> well, the part of that was right. There should be uh, there should be some <laughs> bitchin' music under this. <laughs> John Cho is an extremely famous actor. Yeah. You may know him as Sulu in the Star Trek movies, or as Henry Higgs on Selfie, or as Harold Lee in the Harold and Kumar movies. In 2018, he played the aggrieved dad in Searching. It's a thriller directed by Anish Shaganti that follows a father's search for his missing daughter. John also plays the lead in a forthcoming live-action Netflix adaptation of the anime Cowboy Bebop. And here's a little-known fact, John is also a rock musician. And he's been such a trailblazer in the acting game that he inadvertently became the face of a hashtag campaign for Hollywood inclusion, which we'll get to later. And he joins us today on Asian Enough. John. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for thanks for coming down. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, John, we were thrilled when you said yes, uh, what was it about our podcast that made you want to come on? LA Times. It's my hometown paper. Secondly, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I've just become really interested in the medium. And then thirdly, I was, um, a few months ago, I was listening to a David Chang's podcast. Mm-hmm. And he had, um, I can't remember the guest now, but he's had a few Asian Americans on. And when they got into culture, it was so unique or I realized it was very foreign to hear Asian Americans speaking to one another in media. And I realized also, and I called my, a buddy of mine and we, who had the same reaction. He was so excited to hear it. And it wasn't anything explicit. It was just like the, the tone was different. I realized also at that moment, I'd been talking about being Asian my whole career to white people and I thought, oh, I have to make a concerted effort to talk about these things that come up uh, to Asian Americans. And I, I would like Asian Americans to hear that conversation. Uh, well, we're going to start out by talking about, I guess, your childhood. John um, Cho, is this cool? is your life. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so your family came to the U.S. in the 70s. Um, yes. You grew up in a bunch of places, including like Monterey Park and, and went to school in Glendale. What was that like? Which component of that? Um, Growing up in Monterey Park. Oh, I'm, Monterey I, Park. I, I didn't. I was there very briefly. I was born in Seoul. Was there till I was six years old, and then came to Houston, Texas. Went to elementary school in Houston. Then the roaming started. We went to I think Seattle, Daly City, San Jose, uh, Monterey Park. Yeah. Uh, and we settled in Glendale. So the year you kind of went off to college was, was 1992, right? Mm-hmm. 90. 1990, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, because I was wondering, yeah. I was wondering like if the riots, you know, happening in L.A. with your family here, if that oh, had... Oh, interesting uh, question. Yeah, I was, um, I was in college when uh, the riots happened. At and, Berkeley, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I remember... Go Bears. Uh, go Bears. I remember being very distressed at seeing, well, I mean, the whole situation. And then when I saw the men going up on the roofs. Mm-hmm. Um, in Koreatown. In Koreatown yeah. with their guns. I mean, some people, I think, experience it as pride. Like, you know, these men standing up for what's theirs. And I experience panic. Like, they're going to die. This is going to cause more bloodshed. And I was freaked out. And these are like the images you're seeing in media because you're like all over in Northern California. That's right, yeah. 
These are images of Korean business owners defending their their businesses. Essentially, though, they're all veterans. The, the, the military service is mandatory in Korea, so these are these are men. Who, you know, they're not hunters. They're like they they were trained in the military. They can take apart their rifle and put it back together. Um, so I don't know. It was a different crowd up there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. I just ask because people grow up in L.A. during that time period. It's this they talk about like a Korean sort of racial awakening at the time. Uh-huh. I remember seeing this documentary and there was a Korean guy holding a sign and it was like a rally the day after the riots. And I had never seen it before. But the sign said, uh, responsible are government and white. <laughs> mm. And it was just like interesting to see like them recognizing the racial context during that time or whatever. It was I, I always felt like it was also the moment we collectively became that we got our American membership card, it was that day, April 29th, 1992. It was when, when Koreans became American, we took up arms, fought for our property, you know, and were victimized. I mean, that's, it's pretty American. Yeah. Well, let's, let's rewind. Actually, your, your family came to the States. Um, and obviously you grew up around L.A., but your upbringing was very different from your father's, for example. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how and when did you really come to understand his experience as well? Uh, that's an ongoing question, I'd say. You know, I mean, if there's anything that's really caused me to have empathy with my father, I think it's becoming a father myself. You know, the process of having children is, you know, you relive your own childhood. So it's almost like you're living for the second time and remembering those things. And it's also then living the life your parents lived while they were raising you. So then you're in both, you, each day you're imagining yourself in both positions, each day that your child is alive. Yeah. And um, so I think that that's, in the process, one of the one of the uh, things about having children, I think, is examining my parents' lives and our relationship, and um, seeing you know, for as a child, all you see is a straight road, but as an adult looking back, you see all the junctures and and see where they turned and made choices and made choices. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, what was their story? How would you describe it? You know, the the, the I was told. As, as a child, that they came for our benefit, which I think is true. Heard that too. But is, I think is also not true. Uh, I think Asian Americans tend to believe it. You, you know, it's probably a bit of a manners thing that, they, that they're reluctant to say, listen, we wanted a better life. We wanted to get out of Dodge. And shame prevents them from saying that so they have to say we came for you i always felt that um that that was too much to put on a kid and that we grow up we meaning you and me uh, we grow up feeling like we owe our parents something they made the choice to have us yes and we don't owe our parents our lives you know what i'm saying we 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 should live our own lives but you start that narrative when you're 3 it's hard to shake. There's some things that I would do different that I am doing differently consciously. That's one of them is you know, there are a lot of things about my childhood that I'm trying to give a replicate and some things that I'm not. That component is something that I'm taking off the table. Another thing I'm taking off the table is shame. 
I mean, I feel like that's the cornerstone of my personality in a lot of ways was shame. And I look back and I'm and now I'm trying to remove that cornerstone and what's uh, I'm trying to complete the metaphor and heal I and guess. replace it with uh, Pepsi cans and styrofoam <laughs> peanuts. Is that what's inside? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting because we are fed this narrative. And then when you grow up, you start to interrogate it and you discover that there's all these holes in your family story that you have mm, to fill in mm-hmm. yourself. Like for me, I thought my dad, you know, he told me the same thing. Uh, we came to America for you, you know, and then. Only like two years ago, I learned that he uh, was instructed to come to America by his father. Uh, And that was during the time of the Taiwan Strait Crisis because we're from Taiwan. And that was when everyone was afraid that Taiwan was going to get bombed by China. And so he came to kind of like start a new branch of the family in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and then essentially failed to bring the rest of the family over, you know, Mm -hmm. because Taiwan turned out okay, Mm -hmm. You know, and so that my whole reason for being in this country just like changed at the age of like (laughs) 30. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I recently uh, had a visit. My last visit to Korea was to promote searching and and ended up spending some time with family. My parents, by... Uh, coincidence happened to be visiting. We went out to my grandmother's gravesite uh, with the rest of the family, and uh, which is a Korean tradition, and learned so many things. I could sense that my father's life was driven by the guilt of leaving his mother. You know, where was she? Uh, she was in Korea. She's she never left Korea. Yeah, the guilt of the estranged son, mm-hmm. an immigrant son, like that, my, my parents feel that so intense. So if you're leaving your mother, you're not going to say to your kids, I came here, you know, I wanted to get rich. Those things become real, <laughs> you know, um, and you're a kid and you, you the, for, for, even for my dad, I feel like the... <laughs> I'm just, let's for convenience sake call it a lie, but the lie becomes real, psychologically real for him, and we're the reason he can't, you know what I mean? Um, it's a story you tell yourself. Everyone yeah. tells themselves yeah. a story. Well, your dad was a minister, right? That's right, yeah. How did that impact you? How do you, how do you feel like that shaped you? I mean, I don't, I, I'm very curious how your parents reacted when you became an artist, for example. You know, I was young enough to where they didn't take it seriously, I, I think, that uh, they're like, okay, he's trying something out. Uh, I didn't think I could be an actor. I didn't think about that at all, but I was always a reader and I was always drawing, so I'm, maybe it wasn't that surprising to them. There was something like um, also theatrical about preaching and, you know, being sort of immersed in other people's emotional lives and yeah did you ever tell them you wanted to be a rock star i don't know what they i don't i'm trying to remember what they know i don't know <laughs> you're, you have a band too right it's i did still, yeah do you still no have no it? no okay no but a lot of your songs which are on spotify might i add <laughs> um they're they're beautiful like this sort of i don't know how you describe it but it's like this really melodic pop indie rock very introspective it's a lot of the songs that i've heard you know it's interesting that i always i th- i think like there's two kinds of music like there's music that you listen to with other people and that's the fun stuff um that's the music my wife likes and then i always thought of music as his personal experience like with the headphones in and my favorite songs are the ones i enjoy in the car alone driving and yeah. and it's like it's either personal or social 
And I guess I was always into the personal stuff. And maybe that comes from a religious background too, because, you know, I mean, most of these songs are Christian songs are look inside you. You suck, right? (laughs) (laughs) You should probably (laughs) change (laughs) because you're a piece of shit. Um, You're a piece of shit. And in that grand tradition, you started writing songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you ever, like, has your parents, do you think your parents, like, watch your movies and your TV shows? Like, I ask because, like, I don't think my mom's ever read anything I've written. So um, Yeah, I mean, they, they go out, they, they like it. Um, I think at the beginning, I always tell this story, like, when I was doing plays, they were like, what? Um, we're not going to, we're, <laughs> we're not leaving the house at 630. <laughs> And then going to downtown. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, when the Korea Times ran a small story on me, that's when I was legit. Well, that's true validation, man, is being in the ethnic newspaper. (laughs) I still get, like, um, my in-laws are Japanese, and my my wife's grandma used to give me Rafu Shinpo clippings clippings all the time. Um, I've been trying to make it to the World Journal myself. uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in terms of though your career, uh, when you you did start out uh, doing theater with East West Players, for example, which is an institution here in LA, an institution of Asian American theater, and some of your earlier films, your earliest films, are considered now, I think, Asian American indie film classics mm-hmm. like Shopping for Fangs or Yellow or Better Luck Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But then your big break was in an American Pie movie yeah. and then movies, right, as mm-hmm. you came onto the sequels. And that really seemed to to launch your career. Yeah, I mean, that movie was so widely seen. It's hard to imagine a comedy doing something like that in 2020. And I'm still recognized for it. Still? After yep. all the other things that you've yeah, done? Yeah, yeah. I mean... It depends on the countries, too. You know, it it depends on whether they've released it recently on their cable or whatever. But yes, a lot. And it's extraordinary. And it it also, you know, it started off my career in comedy, which was a place that I didn't I didn't have any particular attraction to. I enjoyed comedies a lot. I just didn't think of myself as a comedic actor in any way. But so I was there for a while doing comedies. and um, it also introduced fame into my life. And it was a weird way to start that relationship because of the part, because I didn't feel that it matched my personality even. You know, like it didn't seem of me. And You're not um, a MILF guy you know, <laughs> yeah. at your core? You don't seem like MILF guy number two. You know? So um, I'm really kind of coming to grips now mm-hmm. with being a known person. I mean, it's, it was such a strange thing. Huh. And I don't carry myself particularly well in public as a result. You don't think. think so? Why do you, what do you mean by that? You know, I think if I had written, if I had uh, gotten the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> <laughs> and people were on the street going, Nobel Peace Prize guy, <laughs> uh, high five. I'd be high fiving back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Peace, Middle East, me. <laughs> uh, but... Um, but, you know, being the MILF guy, you wanted to go, hey, shh, shh, shh. it made me sort of want to crawl under a rock. As as grateful as I am for that break, it also, I had that this very equally um, strong feeling of wanting to crawl under a rock. Yeah, both of those things can be true. What's strange is, and this sort of uh, loops back to our 
conversation earlier about parents and shame. You know, I, I noticed, I had noticed when I, I had my son, who was first, that he was very comfortable among adults. And maybe that's genetic or whatever, but I was trying to figure it out. Like, why is he so um, unafraid of adults? I was so scared of adults as a kid. Maybe it was the time, too. Adults weren't particularly friendly when I was a kid to children. But I came up with this other theory, which may or may not be true, which was that my parents were also afraid of the outside world. They had a relationship of fear. These people were more powerful. They could take something from us. They could hurt us. And so when we went, exited our front door and went into the world, it was tighten up your abs, mm. get ready to get punched. Do you think that was because of the journey that they had in in life? I'm sure that was from real data, real mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. a real life mm -hmm. experience that showed them, yes, you they got punched in the gut a few times and then they learned to tighten up. I was thinking, I wonder if my son has a different relationship to the outside world because strangers come up to his dad and shake his dad's hand. Mm -hmm. And so he may, maybe his perception of the world is completely different, that the world is a very friendly place. Well, your parents told you that. Are, are you telling your, your children a version of that too? Be afraid people are going to take something from you? No, I don't, I'm, I'm trying not to, mm -hmm. to do that. Also, um, your kids see their dad's face in movies, which is a huge thing, I think, for any... We've sheltered our children from my face. They don't know. <laughs> Wait, do they not know that their dad's a movie star? Uh, they know that I'm an actor, but we don't take them to premieres or any place where anyone's photographing me mm -hmm. or they'll visit sets sometimes, but that's just a curiosity thing. We love going, looking at the props and, you know, they, they love my trailer because <laughs> there's a fridge in there yeah, and yeah. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. But we've been very active, very active in trying to prevent them from. What's the reason for that? I'm selfish. I want my relationship. I want them to know me through firsthand experience and not what the world thinks of me. Their dad has got to be their dad, and there's got to be one way to know me, which is as their dad. Right. You want to have the relationship on your own terms. That's right, yeah. That must be something that is hard to get when you're so famous and everyone has all of these I ideas. I don't think I'm you. that famous. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're gassing you up. We're like biggest movie star. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's it's really interesting. I wish actually uh, this is a secondary thing. Like I, we need to have discussions about fame because it is consuming our society. It is our currency. People. It's like money now, and people are saving up likes and saving up followers and banking them. It, they're investments, you know what I'm saying? In what? I don't know. It remains to be seen, but people are accruing followers, accruing likes, accruing thumbs-ups and hearts, and they're saving like they, they'd save uh, you know, birthday checks. And I don't know what it's all about. Fame is everyone has a broadcasting device in their pockets. Everyone is a broadcaster. Everyone has access to be famous. All you have to do is have someone punch you in the nuts. With, well, know, on video, as long as on it's video. on video. No, that's true. Right? You just have and to so, like move to Los Angeles and get an agent or something. But nobody knows exactly what fame does because people who are famous don't like to talk about being famous, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. you know, and 
I'm trying to think more explicitly about it because it is a a driver in our world more than ever, ever before. And it's a platform. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I have a a complicated relationship with that word, platform. It's like, what? I, you know, I've kind of went dark on Twitter and Instagram for a while. Part of it was everyone wanted me to comment on something. And I'm like, I'm not a politician. Um, I don't want a platform even. To some extent, I don't want one. Um, And I guess once you build the platform, people expect you to come out and say something about everything. And in, even interpret the absence of of comment as a commentary. Or they look to you for answers, right? It's not appropriate. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a guy who puts on makeup, you know? <laughs> You're an actor. I'm an actor. So uh, I, I get it and I don't get it. You know what I mean? Um, but my point is that all of this is stuff we're not talking enough about. It is a beverage that's available to everybody. We have to say, what is it doing to us? Is is that also sort of a strange place to find yourself in as somebody who came up among this generation of Asian-American actors and artists and filmmakers at a time when that, you know, like there weren't crazy rich Asians, you know, there wasn't Parasite winning Mm -hmm. multiple historic Oscars Mm -hmm. and uh, like Better Luck Tomorrow, for example, had to scrap its way to an independent film release, you know, driving audiences uh through like community outreach that kind of thing you know like mm-hmm. you've you've had that end of the experience and then juxtaposed with the the sort of hollywood side of it does that also make it a little bit more complicated you know in some ways it it doesn't seem like a lot of progress it seems like a lot of progress but then it doesn't yeah and i don't know what the success of anything what what one thing means for us collectively i mean i guess it gets down to also this the real basic question of Asian American identity, which is that we're not all Asian. Asian is a made up term, you know, is a made up group. We did it for political reasons because they all say Ching Chong. We're like, we should lock arms. They think we're all the same anyway. Let's lock arms and be a group, be a political group. And then it's also like an adolescent thing. I think for me, I was as a kid, I identified as Korean. I was told I was Korean. And then as I and then as I became an adult, I became a teenager and was trying to individuate myself from my family, I was like, I'm going to be Asian, which is sounds more American, I guess, or different, but it's less specific. It's much more mm-hmm. nebulous. So, I mean, I think that that's the framework for understanding all of this. It's like, does Better Luck Tomorrow lead to something else for Asians? I don't know. Yeah, we've seen so many different eras of representation. Like when I saw the movie, like Chan is Missing and saw yes. that, it was made in 1982. And Chan is Missing is this really interesting Wayne Wang film about, uh, it's a mystery story set in SF Chinatown. The questions they were exploring in Chan is Missing, like is being Asian giving up all the Asian part of yourself and adopting mm-hmm. American culture? Or is it going back to Asia? Or is it this thing? You know, the questions that were still being raised in 1982 are still being raised today. And that's the thing that floored me is like, oh, like the, mm-hmm. these questions never go away. Yeah, it's sometimes like it's it's encouraging in the sense that uh, multiple generations have dealt with it. And sometimes it's uh, depressing. I think from a perspective as an artist, it's hard to see, you know, what the impact of representation and art is, you know, I know that your roles have all like meant a lot to me personally, like seeing wow. you in Harold well, and that's Kumar. That's very moving. 
No, I mean, you're the only guy out there, man. Like, there, there's no one else. You know, I grew up in Tennessee. Anytime I would see someone Asian in popular culture, I'd spend a long time Googling and searching about them. And you It know. was my, um, that experience, I had the same experience, like, uh, minus the Google, but it was so positive to see, like, George Takei on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So exciting. On the flip side, it was so depressing to see people speaking Japanese on MASH, you know, or and all that stuff. It was so scarring. It has been a bit of my guide, just like imagining myself as 12 years old and going, would, would, would that guy appreciate this role or would he be bummed out? So I consult my 12-year-old self a lot. You know, earlier on, there were a lot of things that were borderline. I'd always turned down the, the explicitly racist stuff right, right off the bat, but there were a lot of things that were borderline. And uh, so there was there is like an Asian guy network that I would call and and be like, okay, so the part is... Huh. Who this else is, was in this network? Uh, guys I went to high school with. And then after a while, uh, Harold from Harold and Kumar. The um, actual Harold. The actual yeah. Harold. We're, we're very close friends. And um, I like his angle because he's also, he wants me to succeed. Mm. <laughs> he wants me to make money. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a great sounding board. There's an actual Harold? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm yes, there is oh, an yeah. actual Harold. Um Oh my God, you should see Frank's what? face right now. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, love it. I love hanging I, with Harold. I always say this because uh, uh, I told him I was coming here and I talked I talked to him about this. You ran it by him. Mm -hmm. I ran it by him. Mm -hmm. What did he say? Uh, he likes it. But you're saying like even back earlier in your career, you would sort of be like, hey guys, mm -hmm. what do you think about this? Where's Where's the line? Yes. You know, we get we get into the weeds about stereotypes, but yeah. like there's there's an anti stereotype that references the stereotype. Like you could be Asian uh, playboy, and that and if that's played for laughs, you go what What are we laughing at? Are we we're laughing at the stereotype? It's just I'm not playing a stereotype. So it's like, what are we doing really here? That's a lot of Asian representation today is, mm -hmm. is, is sort of the, the uh, in popular culture. That's how they get around it is. It's so, about trying to subvert. Subvert. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, I references think, the yeah. stereotype very yeah. directly. I think there's a whole process. Like the stereotypes are applied to you. They hurt you. And then you define yourself in relation to the stereotypes. And then you figure out who you are after all this crap is, all, you know, off of your chest, you know. And I, I think we're we're starting to move into that phase where, like, we're no longer defined by, like, what hurt us. Yeah. I'm thinking back to the Shane Gillis thing. I mean, right, like, before Shane Gillis was fired from SNL, when yeah. the, his comments I mean, I think surfaced. what bothered me, I, I, I don't, I didn't even, I didn't do much research into it or anything, but I read about it. In the Los Angeles Times. Oh, the great record of note. Oh, thank you. Uh, you but uh, what bothers me about it, and I think what we have to think about is why does he, and many comedians as a matter of fact, feel that they can do racist jokes about Asians and they get to say, don't you have a sense of humor? Mm -hmm. And it makes me think that what they really want to do is do N-word jokes. But they think, I I'm going to take heat for that. I'll go take it to the wussies, you know, the people who won't complain. And, like, and we have to, we have to bite, you know, when that happens. And why, like, how come, like, when we say it's not funny, they just tell us we don't have a sense of humor? You know? That's, uh, I mean, 
in a way, I think there's like a weird connection to rape culture too, which is like, you know, kind of bullying a woman into sex. Uh, what are you? What are you? Uh, uh, what are you frigid? What are you? What are you? What are you uptight? You know, can't you take a joke? You know, it's a bullying disguised in this in humor, and I hate it. Do you feel like? I mean, you you talked you talked about your reluctance to use social media to sort of make those kinds of commentaries, but I feel like a lot of your roles are in themselves radical choices. Yeah, I mean, listen, the the experience of watching somebody um, watching a story, you can get to people. I frankly am suspicious of the medium, uh, the, the ability of the medium, of this electronic medium, to change anybody's mind about anything. I, I could be wrong. It's just, my, that's my observation, is that no one seems to be changing anyone's mind. Um, and then there's just spending time in a place that's not this world. And you're leaving your family. You're, you're going, you're, I'm leaving this room and going up there and uh, is that good? I don't know. Um, I'm guessing not. Yeah. You know? And I noticed an improvement in my mood when I was doing less of it. And alternately, you know, um, an increase in anxiety when I was on it, thinking about what others thought about me. Totally. Which is a, yeah. um, a terrible place to be, especially if a lot of people know who you are. Because then your anxiety can be multiplied by thousands and thousands. I'm curious, though, when um, in 2016, a screenwriter named William Yu created a hashtag, and that hashtag was starring John Cho. And it was basically envisioning you in all of these huge Hollywood marquee films and blockbusters to, to ask, why aren't there more Asian-American stars getting these sorts of chances? And what was it like for you to to like realize that this was happening, that strangers were, were advocating using your face and, and like championing. It was weird. Um, I mean, it was, the idea was really cool. Um, and what he was saying, I was 100% behind. Shout out to Will Yu. Shout out to Will Yu. And he's a a really, um, smart, smart guy. Um, and I thank him. you know, for getting that discussion started. It wasn't really about me, obviously. It was, Mm -hmm. um, as an artist, I don't know whether uh, I was thinking, boy, I need to be in, like, I don't really... Martian or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have a... um, That's important, I guess, to some people, to, uh, in the bigger picture, we need an Asian superhero. Uh, I don't really care about superhero movies personally. Um, so that that part of it, the political part of it, I'm disconnected from emotionally. And so, but that's what he was talking about, mm-hmm. the political part. He wasn't saying John Cho should be in a great performance. You know, he should work with Scorsese. 
or Soderbergh, he was saying he should be in the Avengers or whatever. And that's an interesting argument. I'm not emotionally connected to that argument, but I get it and I support it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I also think part of the argument is just like John Cho is like incredibly underrated. And I wish that I had seen him in all these movies too. I, I for, for me, that was like one of the things that, that spoke to me about that. I thought you were really good as the romantic lead in Harold and Kumar, for example, right? You know, I know like it probably feels weird to get so many props for, you know, just getting the girl or whatever. Like, but, you know, I was definitely one of those guys who, who were kind of like giving <laughs> you the props. Like mm-hmm. you like, yeah, kind of made people feel like they could get the girl. Uh, growing up in Tennessee mm-hmm. where, you know, there wasn't a lot of dating opportunities for Asian guys. So, yeah. Yeah. But how does that make you feel to get, like, props for that? Even to hear that. Yeah. You know? Well, that's really, um, really cool. Um, and it bums me out, which is the other side of being, <laughs> of it being really cool. Like, it bums me out that, that, that it's informed by that. Makes me think of, you know, I always wanted to do a movie as a valentine for Asian-American men that was um, me just killing people. Like Kill Bill. Cool action hero? No, just a murderous rampage. And because I do feel like Asian-American men, no one knows this except Asian-American men, uh, at least for a portion of our lives, we walk around with, um, in our pocket is a clenched fist. And we're ready we're ready to fight because people have been shitting on our heads all our lives. And like, you know, I just feel like that there is an ultraviolent streak in so many Asian American men because of that anger, because of that emasculation. I mean, the ang- I, I got chills when you said that because like, yeah, I think anger is a natural state for Asian American men, but also Asian American women. Like, you know, like it's a different type of anger based on the genders. But, you you know, you just spend all of your life being told that you're something that you're not. Mm-hmm. You're, you yeah. spend your life trying to be bigger than the stereotypes applied to. I, I look around and I think I see um, and this is different from our fathers. Our fathers did not grow up with that. They 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 come here and they experience racism, but nobody's changing their minds about who they are. You know, my dad is Korean. He's a man. He's proud of who he is. He he knows who he is. And you can ching chong him to death. He doesn't give a shit. But us, his his sons, we're different. We when we were soft and malleable, we got told we weren't worth anything. And then we believe them, you know. And so it's so then we grow up with that anger. But my my dad doesn't have any of that. Yeah, and we want to be treated better than that, you know. Like I yeah. think I want more than to be able to like earn a living and send money home to my family. You know, I want I want citizenship like everyone else has. You know, I want I want identity and 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 personhood. You know, that's why it's complicated too. I mean, all these cinematic victories also have a kind of you know, I'm not sure what it means for Asian Americans, for you and me. Well, okay, when you took on, for example, your upcoming, big upcoming lead role in Cowboy Bebop, how do you describe to people who don't know at Cowboy Bebop what this project is? I don't bother describing it. <laughs> I say it's based on a Japanese anime. If you know it, you'll know it. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. Because it's hard to say what it is. Um, you know, you don't know it's a pipe until you look at it. 
There you go. Well, that's what about the people who don't know what it is? That was you a know? really weird metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> people who don't know Cowboy Bebop previously. It's it's it takes place, um, you know, in a post apocalyptic uh, galaxy. Um, we're bounty hunters um, and going from job to job. Uh, and um, the the series is afraid, not afraid to um, to roam, you know, and and do things that are narratively strange, and um, and the music is an incredibly important part of it, you know, which is uh, sets him up as a cowboy and um, a noir figure, uh, a detective. Um, yes. And it, so it's sort of almost um, like all my dream roles into one or like all these genres into one uh, role. Why is it important to you to take roles like that that aren't, you know, in your face about the Asianness? They aren't identifiably Asian oh. like that. You know, I don't consider myself Asian first. Mm -hmm. And the world does or Americans do because we're obsessed with, with it. Mm -hmm. But I consider myself, I don't know, maybe first male, you know, and then husband, father, um, son, um, artist, and then, you know, like seventh or eighth is Asian probably mm -hmm. in terms of how, how I think about myself, mm -hmm. you know. And so uh, I, I suspect that most people are like me. And so for, you know, from a character point of view, it seems false for people to be talking about being Asian or you only do that when you're doing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, so narratively, I think it doesn't really work well. Um, yeah. That's really it. And then, um, you know, ironically, like Searching was a movie that didn't kind of wear its Asianness on its sleeve. And on the other hand, it was incredibly specific, you know, we worked hard and I, um, there were some misses, but for me, we, I was trying to bring a lot of stuff from my personal life into it. And I'm married to an Asian woman and have, um, we have Asian children, shockingly. And, what? um, really? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was like, this here. is the culture is going to be there. Yeah. You know, just trust it. Like it's going to come out and people really, um, People were even interpreting things as Asian things that weren't, that we didn't. Oh, interesting. That we didn't put in there or think about. I felt like it was a very Asian American family. Right. It was, it, yeah. It, it was, was also set in the Bay Area, so it felt very authentic that's right, in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there's a way to get at culture without getting at culture. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to get at race without getting at race. Maybe that's an Asian American thing. Maybe that's not an African American thing. Um, that maybe that's our journey as a as a culture, um, as a people. To you know, but um, that's what works for me. Has worked for me. As I move forward and I'm trying to look for things to do, I found that you know when white writers are tasked with writing for Asians, it's even the the the. Um, the best ones, the most well-intentioned ones have difficulty and it really bumps them. And the writing becomes very much, even if it's not on the, even if it's not textual, um, 
you really get the feeling that the thing that they're pushing most is the race. And, um, you know, I think recently made a decision that like whatever character I play will be Asian because it's me and I really have to step back from it. And, um, so I think I'm trying to avoid things that are written Asian because then they'll be false because we don't walk around with that. Um, I don't know. You mean putting the Asian first? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I mean, you know what I mean? That makes total sense to me. I mean, I used to write about the San Gabriel Valley, Monterey Park. And Mm -hmm. when I would describe the area, like editors would want me to say like, oh, yeah, say that there's neon and Chinese Chinese on the signs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Give them a little of that Asian flavor. Oh, the flavor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like that's not how they define themselves. You know, when you when you take that away, when a movie like Searching kind of just lets you define it yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's more. Well, the other the other big picture wise, you know. Um, the last component, my, my most recent component, as we said earlier, you know, it's a lifelong journey, sort of unpacking your race and your culture and your parents and all that. Uh, I think I'm in this phase now, especially since 2016, uh, of unpacking the other side, which is what is white. You know, and that's, I think, equally important to understanding, to to our self-understanding. Yes, yeah. Like what that is, because we think that that's normal and we're east of normal, we're oriental, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And um, and so we, we, there's one thing to take pride in being east of normal. And now that we actually, part of the job is to go, there's no center, Mm -hmm. you know, and understanding what that is or what um, normal is defined as or what like the default who defined is. it yeah you know exactly. um how it gets defined and and i think that's important for asian americans as well i'm japanese american fourth generation i don't speak japanese although many people have who are not asian have expected that of me in my life i for sure do not speak korean mm-hmm. um but i love I love movies. I cover mm-hmm. movies here of, of, of all kinds um, at the LA Times. And I've gladly covered Bong Joon-ho's career in Parasite. But I, too, had to learn, you know, the names and, and proper naming conventions of all of the, the stars and, and makers of Parasite, which is something that a lot of people in the media don't seem to bother to, yeah. to do. I, then listen, I, I, I'm completely with you. Like... It is completely acceptable not to know. You guys are American. Like, yeah. why, yeah, why, would, why would know? we know? <laughs> like, it's completely acceptable not to know. It's um, not acceptable to not do the work. Mm-hmm. Of course. And it drives me nuts. I watch a lot of uh, basketball, and these guys on, you know, on a Slovenian name will just butcher the name. And I'm like, you know, it's your job to announce these players' names. There's only 10 on the court at a time. Mm-hmm. And there's maybe two of them from Slovenia. You know, that's you find out there's probably a guide in the program that you got and just look it up. Yeah. I don't understand why people don't do that. Yeah. Um, it's it's insulting. Yeah. And you, you, you're you going to say Antetokounmpo, you got to just learn how to say it. Yeah. You know, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not that hard, actually, yeah. once when... when uh, 
it's really weird and revealing what types of pronunciations people are willing to learn. Like, I can say prosciutto, I can say bruschetta, I can say pepperoni. People can spell <laughs> Timothy Chalamet yeah. now and Saoirse Ronan. I, I do have a, a, a beef with restaurants that just say, our menu's in French, fuck you. Oh, yeah, Italian <laughs> restaurants like, are like that, uh, man. What if, what if a Chinese restaurant was like, it's in Chinese, figure it out, bitch. Oh, you, um, you put a Chinese menu in front of some people, they're like, oh, where's the English menu? Something must have gone wrong. Like, come on, like... Like Italian menus are like salume, and then like I don't even know honestly. I'm googling and then Italian. Do, I, let me do the thought exercise. <laughs> what is the thing going back to the, you know, what's the most authentic sushi place? You know, what's the hard most hardcore Korean? What is authenticity? What is that about? I I I mean that's a really big question for me. Um. I have a theory, a little bit of a theory. Oh, it's it's in sociology. And, uh, you know, there's a recent book by Mark Pudongpat who, who talks about how, you know, a lot of Americans' first experience of Thai was through Thai food, mm. you know. And so because they their first experience of Thai culture was through Thai food, they uh, are conditioned to want things like authenticity. And so they understand Thai Americans through that lens of authenticity. And so many of the ways in which Americans are exposed to Asian cultures are through this lens of authenticity. Or any any culture. Right, right, yeah. right. Immigrant cultures mm-hmm. specifically. And so like that's why, you know, they expect Thai Americans to know like all of these different flavors is because, you know, food is one reason. You know, food is a big way that Asian immigrants have kind of like navigated and like you know, created an existence in America and is like one of the only places in which, you know, if you're white or you're not familiar with immigrant cultures, that's the place where you touch it, you know? There is a kind of, I think there's, um, part of it is, um, it shows a kind of courage to go to the deepest, darkest Africa, you know, into the heart of darkness and, and, and come back alive kind of a thing. Right. Although I will say the flip side of that is I've always felt like, um as much as maligned as white Americans are in in this in this respect, um, they can be extraordinarily open in a way that I look at back at the country of my birth and I go, are Koreans Koreans seem to be comparatively, you know, uh much more closed off and much less accepting of difference. You know what I'm saying? So the, there's the good and the bad here, I should note, you know, that yeah. um I mean we would not be here, all of us, meaning my family, without the kindnesses of uh, specifically white churchgoers. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah. Um, and they're even, I'm not sure what they thought about us. I can't say. And I'm not, I'm sure there were lots of things they didn't understand. I'm sure there were things that they were suspicious about. But still, you know. I owe them some of my sweetest memories are, you know, are with them. Yeah, even in the modern day, too. I mean, we can't yeah. waste anyone's goodwill, you know. My 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 editor is white. You know, the people who hired me at the LA Times are white. So, right. so yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, point. it's all a part of, like, this is, uh, I guess, for for anyone listening from, uh, I, this is a disclaimer from, my, from myself, this is all sort of thought exercises for me mm-hmm. and trying to figure things out as I move forward. All right, we got to wrap up this conversation, unfortunately. We need to get to these bad Asian confessions that we talked about at the top of the show. Basically, we're going to share a time or a thing that's made us feel like we're not Asian enough with the idea of critiquing why. 
my bad Asian confession, well, I have so many. <laughs> but uh, this past uh, weekend, I went to uh, Kang Kang Food Court to do my, you know, coronavirus panic buying because they have this uh, a freezer there with a bunch of dumplings and baos and mantos. I bought six packs of dumplings. Uh, feeling like a king, you know, driving back home with all these dumplings in my cooler in my trunk. I get home, I get distracted by something, I leave them in the car. A uh, <laughs> couple days later, discover the melted frozen dumplings in my car. Just so wasteful. You know, I, I thought about what my mom would say. You know, I thought about what my dad would say. And I guess I just felt like a bad Asian because Asians are supposed to be frugal. You know, my mom and dad raised me that way. And my parents, when they were kids, they still remember being hungry. And I only really lost like $46 or something like that, nine cents based on the, the pricing they have at Kang Kang. But like, you know, it still hurt to lose that amount of money. And uh, yeah, I just felt like such a terrible, terrible Asian. <laughs> My bad Asian confession is that when I was a kid for about 10 years, I actually played this Japanese traditional instrument called the koto. The koto is this long wooden stringed zither that you play with ivory picks when you're a kid, your grandmothers dress you up in kimonos and you're told to basically channel like a perfect doll as you sit there and, and perform. I sight read Japanese music. I even like sang along phonetically in Japanese when I performed. And this is something that was a part of my life for a long time growing up. But around high school, I, I chose to stop taking these lessons in order to spend my spare time doing things like playing soccer. Um, and those things I also loved. Those are very much a, a part of who I am as well. But now that I'm older, I kind of regret stopping the koto lessons. I, I regret losing that part of my life. I still do have my koto at home here with me, and I, I break it out once a year just to see what I remember if I can still play the songs and read the music. And sometimes I think about maybe taking up lessons again. Um, but that is one thing that I, I look back and I, I can see that when I was that age, a very specific age, a specific time in my formative experience, I chose to say, I want to do something different. I want to explore a different part of myself. So that is my bad Asian confession. Okay, give it to us, John. What is your bad Asian confession? Uh, I tell white people that I will take them to Koreatown, and I, and that is a lie. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've never have, and I never will. Why is that? I don't want to be anyone's Sherpa. I don't want to take I don't want to participate in this anthropological study that they're doing. I don't want to make anyone feel down. They are down or they're not. They can get Korean if they want. I don't know why I need to be there. I don't want to show open any doors for them if no one's opening it for them. I don't want to force open any door for them. I don't want to be the subject of a story, a cute story in Koreatown. Um, I don't want any part of it. Um, if they want to invite me to go to Korean barbecue with them, we're going to dinner. 
That's different. But I will not take anyone down the Mississippi in a canoe. Feels like performing a little bit. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to speak Korean. I'm going to speak English. So they're going to be disappointed. I don't want to tell everyone what they're eating. These are all stuff that I saw my parents do, and I hated it. I didn't, I hated it when they said, that's, we Koreans eat a dish called, that's actually octopus in there. I hope you like it. I don't want that. That's, that's, uh, I guess I have another bad Asian confession. I've taken a lot of white people to dim sum. <laughs> like, I have taken pretty much every white person I know to dim sum. I, can I just say, this is <laughs> off track. Uh, <laughs> I'm not into dim sum. Maybe that's my commitment. Oh, oh, okay. I like the food. I don't want it at 11 a.m. I do. <laughs> what they? And I want it on the push cart. The little push cart. There should cart. be. Yes. There should be. Half the restaurant should be dim sum, then the other half should be cots. <laughs> uh, like. Yeah. Yeah, we, right. It's it's too much at 11. That's end all I'm saying. Yeah. You, you, at 11. Do you have a bad Asian confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. Okay, that is a wrap for the very first episode of Asian Enough. Thank you to actor John Cho for joining us, and thank you for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Frank Xiong, and by Jen Yamato. Our senior producers are Rena Palta and Lina Anwar. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson, and our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. Hey, did you know that you can download the second episode of Asian Enough right now? It's our interview with the fantastic Lulu Wong, the director of The Farewell. But I knew that I didn't want to tell a story that was biased and that was just that exists only to prove my point of view. That's not interesting. If you like Asian Enough, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. We need all five of those stars, actually. (laughs) Cheesy, we know, but it really does help. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, Camila Victoriano, and Clint Schaff. And remember, if you ever see John Cho on the street, don't call him the MILF guy. Maybe try this line. Nobel Peace Prize guy! 